This is Healing Choices, conversations on addiction and recovery. The season of Valentine's is here, and a lot of us, single, dating, partnered, or married, are reflecting on what love means to us and how to best practice it in our daily lives. Romantic love is a source of deep joy for many of us, but it can also be a source of some of our deepest struggles. Romantic relationships are never perfect, and some can even turn toxic and hurtful. In this episode, Houston social workers and addiction recovery experts Mel Taylor, Lori Feaster, and Andrea Washington discuss codependency, what it is, how it happens, and its connection to addiction. Well, welcome. Uh, it's good to be back. I've got some good friends here today, that uh, colleagues that work with us here at the Council on Recovery. My name is Mel Taylor, and I've been privileged to be the executive director here for going on 27 years. And I'm joined by two of our colleagues. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Lori Feaster. I'm the clinical director of the Center for Recovering Families. And I'm Andrea Washington. I'm a, a clinician on our staff. Well, welcome, y'all. Uh, let's start with the, the simplest. I hear this term clinically codependent. Mm -hmm. What is it? To Andrea, Lori, what is it? Well, I'll start. Uh, codependent for me is not knowing where I have begun and you, or I and or you begin. It's that oneness that we hear in songs, we see on TV, um, all the fantasy that goes together to be uh, in love per se. But the truth of the matter is it's, that is not the truth. There isn't such a thing. It, that's It's a boundary issue. Being by myself and with myself is really okay. I don't have to uh, know your intimate feelings to be intimate with you. Um, and we get the codependence uh, issue here when we're dealing with, often with loved ones that have been in some sort of an addiction, whether it's from alcohol or drugs or sex addiction or love addiction, where their families have, uh, have been exposed to this addiction for a long time and they forget themselves. Mm -hmm. They lose themselves in, in the fear, in the anxiety, and all of those things to uh, help, and I'm putting parentheses around that, by the way, um, <laughs> their loved one cope and live their lives, when in fact, in fact, that's not what they're doing. They are not helping them. They're loving them to death is what we'd say. Yeah. Does that make sense to you, Andrea? Yes, it does. How I often define uh, codependency is that I am putting someone else's needs ahead of my own to my detriment. Mm. So if, you know, if I have a partner who... Um, is irresponsible with money and they couldn't pay their car note and I give them money but we couldn't pay rent because I gave them money to pay for their car that is to our detriment that's to my detriment or to our detriment in which one one bill is not getting paid just to pay another one because someone else was being irresponsible with their money so that is a that's kind of how I the litmus test for me is like can I give and can I do and support my partner in a way that is not to my detriment, in which I'm not losing myself, in which they don't become about my entire life? Mm -hmm. That's codependency. That's mm -hmm. also how a lot of love addicts uh, show up the same way. So, Andrea, you have a particular credential. You're you're what's called a certified sex addiction therapist. Yes, is that I am. CSAT is CSAT. the so. It is. 
talk a little bit about that because you're uniquely trained and you see these issues a lot, both I would think sex addiction and love addiction and a good dose of codependency thrown in. Talk a little bit about what that credential is and what that looks like. Well, the credentialing is through... Uh ITAP and the training is about being able to work with people who have uh, problematic sexual behavior and or relationship is, uh, behavior that is causing other problems in their lives. And so it's very similar to, um, say, alcohol, an addiction to alcohol, addiction to another drug. You can meet all the same criteria even though it's not currently in the DSM-5, though my understanding is it's coming in some of the later editions. Right. But you can meet all those criteria. Like there's a loss of control. There can be a failed attempts to quit. You're giving up activities. You're, you're a lot, an awful lot of time is being consumed using it. It's impacting your role obligations. It's impacting personal relationships, hazardous use, tolerance, um, withdrawal symptoms and withdrawal affordance. All of those same criteria that you could have for alcohol or cocaine or crystal meth, you can also have that for sex and love addiction. And so... Um, uh, Dr. Robert Weiss, who is actually, he's going to be coming here next month. Uh, he, the way he puts it is that, you know, sex addiction is not about sex and love addiction is not about love. With sex addiction, it is about the pursuit of sex and the, the fantasy of the, the belief of what I'm going to gain from this encounter that ends up becoming very compulsive. And in love addiction, it is about the fantasy of how I think this person is and what they're going to do for my life. Not necessarily who the person actually is. So well, it's these fantasies is who I think they are or who I'm projecting them to be, uh, who I pretend that they be. It could also be the potential that I see, again, in, in those air quotes that, we, that, we, that we're talking about, in which I'm in love with someone's potential and not who they actually are. And again, this is also very similar to substance use because it's another way we numb our feelings. Exactly. Another way we don't deal with what's going on internally uh, emotionally, exactly. physically, the it whole is. nine yards. It is. Especially in sex addiction, uh, one of the thoughts in the community is that it's an attachment uh, uh, disorder. Mm -hmm. And so attachment is all about soothing. It's about being uh, feeling safe and feeling secure and, and having problematic or maladaptive ways in which we do that. So if we're using sex as a way of dealing with feeling lonely or feeling or, or not dealing with my emotions, all these things, it numbs it out or excites me, all these different things. So it, it, it's not really about the sex. Same thing with love addiction in that if I have an anxious attachment, then I am constantly pursuing my partner and wanting them to complete me and make me whole. And if I have an avoidant attachment, I am seeking out a relationship because I know that's, that's what I want, but then I'll neglect it. I'll be distant from it. I, it's, just, it's just my acquiring of it that satisfies me to be able to say, oh, I'm in a relationship, but then I'm with someone who's emotionally unavailable. So so we say a lot of time in, in a garden variety addiction, I'll take drinking, mm -hmm. one drink is too many and 10 is not enough. Mm -hmm. I'm continuously looking to be satisfied because yes. it's about the quest. It's yes. about, if you will, the hunt. Mm -hmm. It's not about being satisfied with what and I've got. And both sex and love addiction is the same way. It is... The same type of chemicals that go that, that impact our brain when we're thinking about using a drug or thinking about having that drink is the same thing when we're, when we're in the pursuit of 
looking for sex or in the pursuit of a potential partner that we that we're trying to date. And codependency flops in there too when we're thinking about when the person is with that addict or abuser, they have a heightened sense of an anxiety which their hormones, their fight flight uh, freeze hormones are elevated where they get their little mm-hmm. kind of tweak in a sense. Yep. Um, so when the chaos ends they don't know what to do mm-hmm. it's like they're in withdrawal they're going to go look for other issues to get consumed in mm-hmm. it's really difficult for them to sit and be with their feelings because as soon as they are they're overwhelmed by them yeah. and so as that co-addict or that's what that's how the word started mm-hmm. codependency co-addict. being in with co-addict yeah. Um, they were always looking for that next hit. So if they're not fixing the uh, significant other, they're fixing the kids or whoever else is around mm-hmm. and not looking internally. Not fixing them, yeah. right. themselves. And the, right. the, the interesting thing about the codependent, they look really good. I mean, they they look good like the best person in the world because you see all these, oh, look, bless her heart, she's putting up with such uh, terrible behavior. Yeah, she's a martyr. She's over-functioning. And... Uh, they are. They're over-dependable, over-responsible, over, over, over. Um, and our society loves that. Yep. You yeah. Know? We it like, supports we that like and rewards rescuing that. those victims. Mm-hmm. Those, yeah, yeah. And, it's, you know, out of the kindness of my heart, I'm being a good Christian in which I'm doing that. Right. So, I mean, you can be codependent even with your friends. Right. And codependent with coworkers. Right. And and codependent with your yes. children. It doesn't stop at the no. home. It, <laughs> it, it's, it goes wherever we are, mm-hmm. um, which so does sex and so love, addiction so does and sex other. And love, right? Yes, so, absolutely. So they're bundled. They're bundled. And where you see one, you likely see at least parts or pieces or bits of, of including addiction. Sometimes we have to get... I like to call it a tapestry in which they're all interwoven. Ah, well put. Say that again. It's, it's a tapestry in which they're all interwoven. You have different uh, threads that are that are that support the, the love addiction, different threads that support the sex addiction, different threads that support the codependency, but they're all connected to make this, the same picture. Wow. And we get back to that family. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> Who, family. The family that yeah. needs all the support in the world to get to that recovery end. So we have the addict who's acting out and doing their part, mm-hmm. and then everyone else is codependent or co-related mm-hmm. in some way or the other, and they play different roles, don't yeah. they, okay. each family member? Yeah. Do, and, talk and a little the, bit about the dynamics of the family member roles well, a little bit. Well, the system sets that up in the sense, I mean, we've seen research from Murray Bowen and others out there that say birth order plays a role, but also the difference in, in how we're raised. I mm-hmm. mean, today's... Kids look different than kids when I was growing up. But part of, um, it's it's also how we're wired. I make a perfect social worker the way I'm wired, right? I was that codependent and can still be that codependent in an addicted home because I was that one who wanted to ensure the tension of the home was less by doing good, mm-hmm. by over-functioning, over-responsible, cracking a joke here and there when I could mm-hmm. to alleviate what was going on, which then um, you don't look at the brother that's using drugs, a sister that might be having another issue, or the other son that's not available, mm-hmm. or let's even talk the parents. You yeah. Know? yeah. So it, I look good doing all of that. Um, but that sets uh, sets me up certainly for failure later. Yeah, in my family, I was the hero child. I was the oldest. 
uh, I was at, at least told I was among the, the smartest of the three. That wasn't true, but they told me that for a setup, I'm sure. Yeah. But mother and dad were partying to the point of many times inebriation early. Later, they chronically became alcoholic. But I would rescue the other kids. Mm-hmm. I would go in and make everything okay, enabling that behavior to take place. It's my parents, mm-hmm. who am I to tell them that what they're doing is not good for the family? Mm-hmm. Well, they were your first gods too so yeah. remember that Ooh, yeah. yeah they were the they were the ones that first took, deities took yeah. care of you or mm-hmm. supposed to take care of you so when we think about and I'm, I'm gonna switch to codependency in a moment or now i should say um pia melody developed um a, a platform the developmental immaturity model yeah. where there's places that we look at where if kids don't get their needs met really causes a setup for codependency and later on so much more in one of the first things is safety you know protection um and also honoring us as children feeling valued valued Thank you for that word. Yeah, I was searching. Valued. Good word. <laughs> yeah. It's valued and uh, protection uh, Real. With, with, with boundaries. Yes. With our reality. reality. Meaning yeah. that our reality is validated in one hand and the other is that uh, the reality of our infallibility as humans and that that is still valued instead of having to be perfect. And that our wants and needs are available, that we know what they are, and that we can be spontaneous. So in any of those spots... We have, uh, we're not allowed to be in that way, then develop into these issues, which includes all of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So these five cores uh, spots really indicate um, usually abuse, neglect, and trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I read an article this morning that said that, that and it was actually a public article, it wasn't scientific, but it said that the latest research now on letting children cry themselves to sleep Mm -hmm. is a root cause of anxiety uh, that they don't learn how to cope with. Mm -hmm. And so as an adult, I can only imagine if you cried yourself to sleep because parents either weren't there or unavailable or passed out on the couch, mm-hmm. uh, that the I can imagine how, as an adult, I might be looking for that comfort yeah. and reaching out for it in different ways. Is that kind of how it works, Andrea? I believe so. I mean, there is. It is that whether I mean, as a child, is is knowing whether or not our needs are going to be met. That's where their, that assurance comes from. So even if I if I'm crying at night. And, and mom doesn't come or dad doesn't come, the parent doesn't come to see why I'm crying, then you have this tendency to start questioning how safe is my world? Are my needs going to be met? And this it's either I'm very anxious attached to you when you finally do come, or I can be really dismissive of you when you choose not to come. I mean, when you finally do ch- choose to come, and now, you know, it's too late. I mean, that's a very uh, unconscious process that's going on in a child's brain, but that's where their reaction is. It's like, well, no, you, you're not safe. You, you can't be trusted to meet my need, so I'm going to stop depending on you to meet my need. And then that's where people become either needless and wantless or they become anti-dependent in which, oh, no, then I have to take care of myself or I don't have a need. And needless and wantless, let me just make sure everybody knows that. Say is that again. Needless and wantless. Oh, love it. Needless and wantless is when I don't know about my needs and but i know about yours yeah Mm. 
You lose I don't your, know what my wants I've, are. I've lost myself. But I know what you like. Yes, yeah. I know absolutely what you like, Mel. And I could tell you how you do your coffee in the morning. Even how you like your steak cooked. Yeah. Yeah. And but, I make sure you get it just right. that way, especially mm-hmm. if you have a hangover mm-hmm. or you've been partying all night or whatever, right? And so the, the codependent kicks in. And the antidependent is, I know, but I ain't going to tell. Because mm-hmm. if I tell then most likely you're not going to meet my needs and I'm gonna, it's going to fall short. Or you're going to hold it against me. Yeah. Now, I, I also want to, I know I, we are the Council on Recovery, but one of the things I do want to uh, have an understanding regarding codependency is that it, it can also happen in uh, families that don't have addiction. Right, People right, that have exactly. mental illnesses, when parents have a mental illness or they have a physical illness in which they have to be taken care of, or say you have a parent who is overwhelmed because they have a whole lot of kids, and only have so much time and attention to be able to give to them. And so there are, there's often an, an erroneous belief that codependency really is more centered around mm-hmm. addiction. Right. And Good point. And Thank you. Even though primarily it is, but not, but not solely. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I know, I know there's a lot of new work being done with caregivers yes. uh, where people are dealing with trauma, they're dealing with clinical depression uh, in the home, mm-hmm. or they're dealing with Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. aging, and, and somebody, yeah. a dementia, and all of a sudden they're in another role, which they, they fall into, and the dynamics there. Or even parents who are having like late uh, terminal illnesses, and they, they nurse them at home. Yeah. I mean, it, that happens. Yeah. It is happening now. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, it's a good point. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm struck by uh, a friend of ours. We all have met and have heard Paul Williams, noted songwriter, mm-hmm. Grammy Award winner. He's written hundreds of songs. Mm-hmm. He didn't recognize his own codependency until he went to treatment, mm-hmm. and you know he said, "Oh my goodness, all these songs I've written were all about me expressing my codependency." Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we think about that in those terms. Is that a healthy state? Um, is it unhealthy? What's the crossing line? When do we cross over and when does caring for someone really be, is it meaningful? Um, I was talking to, uh, to my supervisee earlier and one of the analogies that I like to give my clients uh, when I'm talking about that particular thing is you are a pizza. You are a cheese pizza. You, are, you need to be crust and sauce and cheese at the very least. Anybody can like a cheese pizza, but if you think that you're not the that you're not the crust and that your partner has to be the crust in order for you to be pizza, that's where your problem is. So you need to at least be cheese pizza, and then the the people you invite into your lives are the other toppings that you choose to bring it to to add to the flavor that you're adding. You know, anchovies or sausage and pepperoni, or you're putting olives on there and and red bell peppers. Those are the things they they give it all of this flavor, and it's lovely that they are there. But if they're not there, you're still pizza. Still okay. So they don't change who I am. No. I'm basically who I am. Yes. So I hear this a lot. I've spent my whole life caring for others. Mm-hmm. And I said that the other day, didn't I, you, you? You probably did. <laughs> I've spent my whole life caring for others. We see that with empty nesters. Yeah. Uh, we see that with moms who all of a sudden are lost. And whether they turn to different kinds of relationships, they start acting out, they start drinking more. Volunteering um, a lot. Volunteering a lot. Being in Working service. Working a lot. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those things, a lot, and I heard you at the very beginning of this conversation said, to the detriment. To the detriment. Of self. Of self. So what can self do? What, what are some of the things you'd recommend just for lay people to be aware of and take care of themselves in finding this so that they remain 
solid. They they don't lose their, if you will, the metaphor is cute, their pizza. They don't lose their, their composition of who they are. Well, when people can't be alone with themselves and be content in that, that's that's a huge indicator. One of the, the litmus tests that I often give my clients is, can you go and can you go to a restaurant and have dinner by yourself, mm-hmm. without this wondering of what other people are thinking about you, and or I have to be doing something and have to have an excuse as to why I'm doing this. So it is that other things become uh, either neglected. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know how to, how to define myself separate and apart from someone else. I don't feel okay with myself if I'm not doing these things and providing this service or giving this. It is this constant state of I need to do I need, and I need to be busy. Do and be. Do and be. Yeah. Human and being, not just be. Human being or human, human being, doing. Human doing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Brene Brown says, you know, that uh, busyness and mm-hmm. being tired are not virtues. No. And yet we, we sometimes disguise those, don't we? We think, oh, man, I'm overworked. I'm overspent. I'm over exhausted. Yeah. All of those are good. They define me as being successful. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's our, that's a lot of our culture. It is. And a lot of our culture also doesn't get to that real connection of self. We don't, we're, if, if we were raised to love ourselves, that's more of a rarity mm-hmm. because if you, if it, People look at that as selfish or a narcissist. But the truth of the matter, if I don't have the self-esteem, mm-hmm. then I'm going to look for other to esteem me. Yeah, And that's why it's called self-esteem. We have to esteem ourselves. We have to find that love and connection um, so, th- so all that other stuff doesn't come in. That I think then we get to have a, a boundary. We know, oh, yeah, that... Those two on the horse riding together isn't my relationship, but it's a nice movie. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, so what can I do to give myself some help? How do I get off of this treadmill? How do I get off of this merry-go-round of doing, being, busying, working too much? How do I? How, what's the What's the best advice you'd give somebody? Just you're one of your friends or somebody. First, you have to come into awareness that there's a problem. Got a problem. Yeah, right, right. and so. It's not until we have that awareness that that what I'm doing isn't working for me. And it's rare that it comes outside of therapy. Or, it, or therapy is the place where we can identify. We, we can might come in and say, you know, I'm not happy with my life. I'm, I'm feeling dissatisfied or I'm, I'm not satisfied in my relationship. And kind of have that general malaise of things that just aren't good. And then I started looking at, we started getting to specifics of, oh, okay, this is why. Mm-hmm. As a layperson, it is, it, can, I, can I be self-examining? And sit back and say, I like my life the way it is. And I think I'm doing a pretty good job. And I am, I'm enjoying this and I enjoy having these people. I enjoy the work that I do. I'm, am I killing myself? Am I, mm. am I striving for someone else's approval or my belief of someone else's approval? And even my own of what's my best. Uh, I talk about the seven, uh, the four agreements a lot. And, you know, when we're striving to do our best, our best may change from day to day. It doesn't have to be this one measure in which if I'm not doing it, then I'm, I'm subpar all the time. But being, Then I beat myself up and, and then start I beat doing myself more. up. Right. Exactly. Yeah, go back to the, what, what feeds me or what works for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah got it. But if we got can it. stop being so distracted with all the things and all the people and, and be exam, uh, self-examinatory, then we yeah. might have that idea of something isn't going, isn't going the way I think it could or I could yeah. be happier in my life or just there's something that's missing I'm not quite sure what many, or, got it yeah many years ago I I quit running 
it was kind of a Forrest Gump thing. Mm -hmm. I was 60 years old and I was, I had run, run, run and 40, 50, 60 miles a week running. And I was at the top of the mountain and I said, I'm done. And he scared me to death because I didn't know what was going to fill that hole. Mm -hmm. And I filled it with silence, yoga. Mm -hmm. I started doing yoga and I did it by accident. But what it gave me was time with myself yes. to really check in and say, do I like what's going on with me? Mm -hmm. And I did it in a sober state, not distracted by noise or mm -hmm. headphones or cell phones or TV. But I did it in a place where, you know, scary stuff. It can be. One, this reminded me of um, Renee's earlier work when she did when she when she was really Renee Brown. You're Renee, talking. I'm sorry. Thank you, Renee Brown. Um, talking about the web, yeah. the shame web. Yeah. In in that shame web, they talked about the different parts that made us, um, you know, have uh, the shame of, you know, who we are, who, what, and where. Um, and part of that is a lot of our outer parts of the self. It starts with us, goes to our family, school, mentor, uh, college, all those things that we're involved in. And then there's all the media and TV and radio mm -hmm. and all these all this input every single day into our lives. When you talked about distraction, if you, me, as a 57-year-old, 58-year-old woman driving down the street, I, you know, I have counted um, up to six advertisements of selling alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it's not that, it's something uh, showing women in some sexy pose with something and so constantly we are bombarded by these messages of who and how we should be. Yeah. And so when you're talking about self uh, and how do we get better, it's that we have to have some critical conversations. Is this real? Is this mm -hmm. the truth? I remember an, uh, one of those famous uh, shots of a guy with these um, abs of, you know, maybe it was a 27 pack, <laughs> but it was incredible. It was not real. I've never mm -hmm. seen a male like that ever in my life. Um, but I know that's what we compare ourselves to. Yeah. Um, are there's, or this, these women that are on these, um, ads that are just flawless. It's really hard to be, um, comparative and that's yeah. where we go when we have some of the stuff going on. Mm -hmm. So it is about that critical, that critical awareness and, and, and questioning, these things yeah right? so if it hurts take a look at it yeah don't hide from it yeah if it keeps coming up over and over we you know we all know the stages of change but i like to tell people if that disturbs you take a look at it don't run from it if it disrupts you mm -hmm. definitely take a look at it because you're you're really needing maybe to get some help so let's talk about help yeah. Somebody is out of control. It's to their detriment. Yeah, to their detriment. They are messed up. Their life is unmanageable and out of control. In this case, let's start, Andrew, get help with sex addiction or love addiction. What does that look like? Love addiction, on one hand, people often come in because they've been in a series of relationships that, aren't, that haven't worked for them. And it's like, I don't understand why. Or they come in and they've been in a, a, a really significant breakup that they haven't been able to get over. And so we started looking at that, uh, what the patterns of that are, what the patterns of, of, of previous relationships have been, uh, how their, what was their connection as far as their, um, 
their esteem, their self-esteem to that relationship? Is it is is it a defining relationship for themselves? Like it like without that relationship, I'm no one, or I don't have an identity. I don't know what to do with myself. That's where we start looking at and start kind of kind of puzzling out. Is this a relationship addiction? Sex addiction, on the other hand, more often than not, I'd say probably eight and a half times out of ten, maybe closer to nine. <laughs> Uh, the person who has compulsive sexual behavior is coming in because their partner and spouse is making them mm-hmm. and is causing a disruption in their life. Uh, or there have been infidelities. Uh, there's been an uh, a, a, a extreme amount of money spent in, pornography. In, on pornography or not actually not as much on porn because porn is a, a lot of porn is free. Mm-hmm. So most escorts. Escorts, escorts, escorts and strip clubs yeah. and stuff like that. And so they come in and we, we, we sit down and, and to figure out, you know, what, what is going on and really what do you want? Like, do you really want to stay in this marriage or do you really want to address this behavior? Uh, one of the things that I tell people, because it's, it's a big argument in the community, uh, in, in the addiction community in general because of, uh, of um, shaming messages regarding sex and addiction. And so what I tell people is that I never tell anyone who's come to me that they are a sex addict. I say you have problematic behavior is, uh, or is, it is addictive and compulsive behavior, but I'm not going to label you a sex addict if that's not what you want, but this is what I'm seeing. Yeah. And so getting, so then starting that process of getting real, looking at what, what their, their patterns of acting out have been, uh, what it's looked like, how it's manifested, uh, getting them honest with themselves because they, mm-hmm. there's a lot of minimizing and compartmentalizing of it and, uh, of, oh, it's not that bad as well as getting them to a place of readiness to be rigorously honest about their behavior going forward. Yeah. And, and how long a process is it? Th- so it's oh. therapy is counseling. The uh, best protocol would be individual therapy along with group therapy, along with, uh, recovery support. Uh, that's the best protocol. Be like twelve steps. Just like yeah, talking yeah. to others who share this problem and do yes. that in an organized, making connections, making connections. Yes, intentional people that you've been accountable yeah. with. Yep. Right. All of those things. Right. Uh, and and with love addiction, it's very similar. I mean, again, people usually come in; they're in a lot more pain because they're 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 wanting to be in a relationship, mm-hmm. and whatever whatever they're doing or have been doing or have allowed to happen is they're not being in a relationship. So then it starts looking at the same things like. What are the patterns? What have been their attachment things? What were their relationship with their parents? Um, a lot of times it is, you, you can see a really direct correlation between what their attachment style is and how it's showing up in their relationships. So then it's also the same thing of individual therapy. You could do group therapy. You don't necessarily have to with love addiction, but it's also just as helpful. And then also still a recovery support of, of like 12-step meetings. My own experience, not directly with this, but in my my professional experience is that really both are the most effective means meaning yes. get help get a therapist get somebody yes. who really understands this issue yes. and the dynamic of it and i noticed you prefer not to label which i support fully but i also like that it's not a quick fix no it's not it took a long time to get yes. there and it's going to take some time and yes. investment to to go further yes. and recover well, happy February. Happy February. Mm-hmm. And uh, happy <laughs> Valentine's Day to those for whom that matters. And if you're a love addict or you're codependent uh, and you want to take a look at that work, the Council on Recovery would be happy to receive your call and chat with you further. And uh, I can promise you this it's far less painful to walk in here than to keep doing the behavior you've been doing. That is very true. Mm-hmm. And we would love to offer our services out there in the community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
This podcast is sponsored by the Council on Recovery, Houston's largest nonprofit provider of prevention, education, outpatient treatment, and recovery services. For more information on the Council's work, you can visit www.councilonrecovery.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you or your loved one needs help with an addiction or co-occurring disorder, call 713-914-0556 to schedule a screening or assessment. You know someone who needs us.